Hello, everybody. Welcome to Nova Southeastern University's South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program podcast, also known as the SFGWEP podcast. We're here to educate, encourage, enhance our knowledge and skills, and promote all those amazing health professions experts working with the elderly, including caregivers and interprofessional teams. My name is Dr. Naushira Pandya, and I'm professor and chair of the Department of Geriatrics at Kiran C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University, as well as the project director for South Florida's Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program. In today's episode, we're going to take an in-depth look at fall risk and prevention of falls in the acute care setting with our subject matter expert, Dr. Deborah Stone, who is also a professor in the physical therapy program at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale and former director of clinical education. She holds a doctor of business administration with a specialty in health services administration from NSU and a doctor of physical therapy from A.T. Still University and multiple specialty certifications, including certified fall prevention specialist. Dr. Stern has clinical experience across the healthcare continuum, including management and health policy. Her diverse clinical and educational experience has fostered relevant research, textbook contributions, peer-reviewed publications, presentations in the U.S. and internationally. She's also served the university, the community, and the profession. Dr. Stern's expertise in risk management and prevention of medical errors has led to volunteering her knowledge to physical therapists throughout the state of Florida to comply with the Florida legislative requirements for ongoing licensure. Dr. Stone, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to our SF Web podcast, and I wanted to thank you, first of all, for your time and expertise. We've had a long working relationship, haven't we, at NSU? And can we start by you telling us why this topic is so important? I know you're very passionate about it. Yes, and thank you for having me this morning. It's a pleasure to be able to share information with, uh, with the listeners. I've been a physical therapist for a very long time and worked through the continuing continuum of healthcare. And now, although I'm in education and I'm teaching, I also do clinical mentoring and proctoring. Because I've seen scores, and I have no idea what the actual number is, of aging individuals post-fall, I've learned that their lives are never the same. Even though the medical treatment may be appropriate, it doesn't mean that they recover from an emotional or psychological perspective. Very true. And it starts a downward trend. Once somebody has fallen once and fractured a wrist or a hip or a knee or or the back, the fear that they suffer from never really goes away. We can do things to ameliorate that a bit, but we also have to rely on the physician community to provide appropriate orders or interventions as a patient moves through the continuum. And that's a problem sometimes in our society because of the way the reimbursement and insurance works. And I think it's so important for practitioners to investigate the cause of a fall. Uh, sometimes 
probably the appropriate questions aren't even asked as to whether the person fell, did they have an injury? Well, interesting, that is fact, but CMS now includes a fall risk history during medical visits, and some reimbursement is directly related to it, not necessarily in the hospital, but certainly when somebody is out of the hospital. But one of the challenges is even if a physician asks the correct questions or the physician extenders, nurse practitioners, PAs, etc., it doesn't mean that the individual is going to be truthful. And some of the research available indicates that when asked, an aging adult may not say, yes, I've fallen, because they don't want their physician to think that they can't be on their own or, or live at home or that their family will be okay with that. And falls are never okay, but the best treatment is prevention. And um, uh, isn't it a classic phrase in geriatric medicine that a fall is a sentinel event in the life of an older person? Uh, Yes, and Joint Commission says the same thing. It is a sentinel event, and most falls do result in some type of injury, maybe not as devastating as a fracture, but certainly soft tissue, an insult to the ego, and, and a sign to an individual that they are changing, and it may lead to inactivity. So, unfortunately, the cascade of consequences after a fall, whether they share it with a physician or not, are major. And very often, there are family conflicts. If somebody's fallen and driving, at an advancing age, the children, so to speak, may think it's time to take mom's keys away. So there are a lot of social issues that are associated with Indeed. declining function. And Indeed, a lot of ramifications. I wanted to turn our attention for the podcast audience to the scope of the problem of falls in the hospital setting, because I know you have an expertise in that. What impact have falls had to adults who are hospitalized? They are devastating. Medicare considers them medical errors. Somebody goes into the hospital ill or for a surgery and is supposed to come out better, not worse. The challenge is that some of the ways we manage aging adults while they're in recovery in the hospital or under treatment is with immobility. And the more we immobilize somebody or keep them in bed, the more at risk they become. And I like to think of hospitalized patients as being all at risk. If I'm admitted to the hospital, whether it's a UTI or something more serious than that, I'm automatically at risk. My physiology is impaired. Being in an unfamiliar, noisy environment and being woken up 24 hours, 24 hours a day, and I can talk about that from personal experience, is extremely disorienting. Being in bed and having a bell, if indeed it's in reach, <laughs> is supposed to bring assistance. Unfortunately, it doesn't always. So if somebody does need to use the bathroom or wants to get out of bed, the ability to do that often goes unanswered. And the, again, the more immobile somebody is, the more mobility problems they'll have. And uh, I'm a rather old-fashioned doctor, and I still believe that getting patients out of bed 
who can be quite sick, getting them out of bed, setting them up for meals, helping them walk to the bathroom is all part of functional rehabilitation. Because I've seen so many times that we hospitalize older adults for certain medical conditions. Those conditions, be it pneumonia or electrolyte imbalance, might get better, but the patient is completely dysfunctional by the time they're discharged. And part of that is because, theoretically, that should all be done. People should be sitting up if they can sit up. They should be on a program to be walked with assistance to and from the bathroom, and we know it's not happening. And the CDC, oh, over a dozen years ago now, recognized this as a major public health problem. It's actually a huge cost to our system, both manpower function and, and dollars. With 3 million emergency department visits a year, and 800,000 to a million hospital-based falls, not being the reason the individual was admitted, CDC has recognized that there really need to be coordinated efforts between all the care providers on the team in the hospital in order to prevent the loss of that function. You can't take somebody who's been in bed and using a bedpan for three or four days and say, okay, you can go home now. And so there's also a gap between the hospitalization and what happens when somebody is discharged. So having a coordinated team effort, which these days I understand is increasingly challenging, COVID has devastated the hospital system. We know that experienced providers are leaving their professions in droves. But without that mobility, this problem is going to get worse as our population ages. So certainly dysfunctional older adults who are at further risk of falling is putting an excessive burden on the post-acute care system as well, be it skilled rehabilitation, assisted living, uh, or a nursing home setting. And that's true. Uh, there are not enough trained professionals available, or do some payers in the system cover the cost of rehabilitation in a different setting post-hospitalization? So it, it is a challenge, and once in another setting, it doesn't mean that an individual is getting the services they need to make them functional. Getting somebody up, walking them 25 feet, and bringing them back to the wheelchair is not going to decrease fall risk or facilitate discharge home. So it's a continuing problem, and I'm embarrassed to share with the audience that sometimes even physical therapists who are seeing patients post-fall and status post-fracture don't necessarily consider the underlying comorbidities somebody may have and the psychological and cognitive changes they have after being in a hospital setting for a period of time and being, I'll use the term, heavily medicated. And by heavily medicated, I mean if somebody is taking at least four medications, over-the-counter or prescription, they're immediately at risk for fall. My experience in acute care is I'm not sure I've ever seen a patient who wasn't taking at least four 
medications, at least while in the hospital, and often different than they took at home for the same problems. So their physiology may not be functioning as well as it was prior to the hospitalization. And of course, it's complicated by the effects of the illness, the immobilization, and the high potential for development of delirium in older adults. So that takes me to my next question. How should clinicians identify older adults who are at risk for falls? And that would probably begin in the emergency room setting. It does start in the emergency room. And with the number of visits, hopefully the emergency room teams are getting the information they need to make a decision about whether or not somebody should be admitted versus not admitted. And there is the opportunity to keep somebody who comes to the ED for observation for up to a few days. The challenge with that is it doesn't include any type of mobility. Beds are generally off an emergency department room or the primary care areas. And again, individuals are left to languish in bed or to figure out how to get help to get out of the bed. If that individual is discharged, they can't go to a rehabilitation facility. There must be an overnight stay with an inpatient admission. So that's a challenge with our system. The hospitals make more money, but it doesn't necessarily benefit the patient. And going home after a fall without intervention, although Medicare Part B will cover that as skilled, is a problem because it doesn't get ordered. The emergency room physicians generally are not ordering home care. That's so crucial. So you've mentioned um, that obviously physical therapists alone cannot ensure uh, the functional ability of a patient or their ability to maintain that, you know, uh, leg strength, ability to walk and so forth. So how could teams work better in a hospital setting? We have a tendency to silo in the hospital. Indeed. The, The nursing staff believes, not because of their training necessarily, that they do X, Y, Z. Only the physical therapist can get the patient out of bed. Only the physical therapist can do walking with the patient. But we do gait training, not walking. Walking in ambulation is taught in nursing school. It's also taught to nursing assistants in their education. And nursing assistants are qualified to guard somebody appropriately, to transfer somebody appropriately out of bed, and also to do range of motion with the assistance of the patient or sometimes without the assistant from a passive perspective. So most individuals managing a patient have the basic skills to mobilize a patient in terms of function. And one of my personal pet peeves with individuals who are hospitalized is the position of their feet. One of the things we know is that if somebody doesn't have adequate ankle movement, stand them up and down they go. So that's something that we have over the years tried to combat with different kinds of footboards and odd looking devices. They really haven't worked effectively, but actual manual movement of another individual is is effective and it's an easy way assuming the patient is alert or can follow instructions and participate to get someone 
to indeed participate. This sounds so basic, but I don't think all health professionals are aware of this. And I also feel that physicians and um, nurse practitioners, PAs, have a role to play in promoting mobility. I think we should be looking intensively at medications on a daily basis to make sure that we're minimizing medications that can alter mental status or cause further weakness, uh, evaluate the medical conditions, reduce the tethers, as we call them, right? The number of IVs, the number of monitors, uh, the number of wires connected to a patient. And of course, an indwelling Foley catheter is a classic example. So once that's not needed, that should be discontinued. I agree. And there are medications, and the beers list is very clear about what they are, that do in and of themselves increase fall risk. Sometimes they're absolutely necessary. Taking the medications isn't always going to cause a fall, but if you take somebody who's impaired otherwise and then add the medications, especially sedatives, individuals who are post-op, residual anesthesia challenges, the post-acute ICU syndromes, they're a problem because somebody's ability to process is impaired. So any patient or individual in acute care who is not spontaneously moving, and I'm not referring to an agitated type of movement, but who isn't moving and positioning themselves independently and without instruction is at risk. Someone who doesn't make eye contact with whoever the professional is is at risk. Someone who doesn't respond to questions, or if there's a challenge with that, physical touch. Because generally speaking, like in CPR, first thing we do is shake a patient. If they don't respond to that, then they're, they're at risk automatically. So you see IVs, they're at risk. Catheters are a bear, sometimes getting back to the toilet after removal is a challenge. If the patient is not on a scheduled bathroom routine, then the chance of incontinence only because of timing is a problem. So again, we have the responses to call bells that are critical. And if call bells are not being answered, the risk of falls goes up. Somebody may try to get up by themselves. Some patients have impaired time sense, so they ring the bell and then think a half hour has passed and it's been a minute. But that's a problem as well for somebody who doesn't process time in an acceptable way or appropriate way. I agree with you. Call bells should be answered. Sometimes it's not possible to respond right away. But that's not a a substitute for not checking the patient on a regular basis. And, of course, if you have family at the bedside or another patient advocate, that's incredibly helpful. It can be if the family or caretakers are listened to. I've seen too many situations in which they may know an individual's habits or patterns and they're ignored, so to speak, or not valued as they should be. And I also want to say that immobility causes major bowel challenges. Constipation is a big problem. And if somebody is constipated, 
the functional consequences are not good. They are not yes, good. very true. So it has to be monitored. And I know uh, postoperatively, if there are no bowel sounds, patient is kept un- until there are. But it goes beyond the bowel sounds, too. So I feel that not every hospital setting has the um, ability to have a geriatrician or an expert in geriatric medicine rounding with an interprofessional team to look at the functional status, the mental status of the patient, in addition to their comorbidities. But it seems to me like on the rounds that occur, that clinicians should pay attention to changes in medication, how can we de-prescribe, how can we reduce the number of tethers uh, to the patient. Has the patient made any progress in terms of function since their admission or since the last uh, day they were seen? I think the use of an interprofessional team is critical, and that interprofessional team may not include a rehab specialist. It may be the nurse. I don't believe that the aides who do most of the patient care are included in rounds. And they should be. And they, I agree absolutely, because they are the ones who are doing most of the hands-on care. They're the ones who are primarily responsible for getting someone to the bathroom. They do most of the transfers, while the nurses are doing medication management, IVs, etc. So I, I think that that would be an excellent addition to a team because it's the aides who really know what's going on. I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's the truth. And I know personally, when I worked in SNFs and ERFs, I went right to the aides to find out how a patient did in, in the morning, not to the nurses, because the nurses did administer medications but they're not the ones who had to help the patient, to know if the patient was engaged, to know what they, what they could do. I completely agree with you. So um, if you had one magic wish to make in terms of research or clinical care or education, what would that be? Make falls go away mm-hmm. and make the consequences of falls go away. There is no facility that I'm aware of from a acute care perspective that has a huge team of physical therapists anymore. We are a financial liability. We're no longer a profit-making center and healthcare is a business. We are cost to the hospital. So there's a tendency for physical therapists to be um, more available to higher level patients who people know are gonna go home or return to their lives as opposed to the people who are really sick. And we know from recent research that, again, we're talking about falls. They're preventable. Most of them are are preventable. And that's considered to be the best medicine now based on the research. So I'd like to see them all go away. And not that I want to see my profession disappear, but if that was the reason that we needed fewer physical therapists, that would be acceptable to me because of the impact. Falls are $50 billion costs. and it's incredible. And I don't think you can measure the cost to an individual whose quality of life goes from independent function to potentially sitting in a chair or death because falls are in the top 10 reasons for death of the elderly. 
and that's of course devastating. Nobody should go into a hospital and not come out. Especially falls resulting in head injuries or fractures. Absolutely, and head injuries are a problem. Many aging adults are on different types of anticoagulants, blood thinners, hit their head, and unfortunately the outcomes are generally not good. And of course that's been in the news recently because of Bob Saget, who is an aging adult, and he died alone after sustaining a head injury that they assume was from a fall. That's tragic. Tragic. But he wasn't in the hospital. So where can the audience find more resources on this topic, Dr. Stern? The CDC has a huge program directed at healthcare at all types of levels and essentially the continuum of care with recommendations and programming for interdisciplinary programs in acute care hospitals, nursing homes, home care. There are resources for physicians, for rehab professionals, for lay people, for families. I think they've done a really good job from outpatient screening right through management in inpatient facilities. The NIH has a plethora of research for individuals who are interested, and it is accessible on the internet. Believe it or not, the Census Bureau has a lot of, yes, a lot of information. And of course, the uh, geriatric uh, organizations and and the British geriatric organization has published a lot of recommendations and literature about fall prevention and post-fall management. And CSM and Medicare now have the Merit Incentive Payment System. And within the regulations for that system in terms of outpatients or community visits, there are a lot of indications and references for physicians, what they should be asking. But I will say, as good as those are, if there's no follow-up by the physician, they're useless. They may get more money, but it doesn't help the patient. And I can say that from personal experience. Every time I go to one of my physicians, I fill out on an iPad, have you had any falls? Are you afraid of falling? And I fill it out. He's never said a word about it. So I think that one of the problems is, although it's recognized as a public health issue and a quality of life issue, it doesn't mean that an individual is getting the appropriate follow-up. And that's critical. And I will also say that if somebody is seeing a physical therapist post-fall, and this is an example we saw here at the university, a lady came in who had fallen. She broke her kneecap. And she had her kneecap repaired surgically, and she came to our balance clinic. And when I walked in, she said, oh, I'm so glad to see the physical therapist. I need physical therapy. She had just finished six weeks of physical therapy for the kneecap fracture, the patella fracture. And she showed me how she could bend her leg and how she could straighten her leg. She said, oh, they worked. They worked a lot, but I'm still off balance. And I said, well, okay, how about taking a walk? She had diabetes, and she had such bad neuropathy that her feet were flail, and she had a tremendous steppage gait. It had never been addressed. 
So I feel like I'm on a one-person educational mission to make sure that doesn't happen to another patient, and it is common. Because the heart of it is we have to look at the cause of the problem. Yes, we can uh, recommend physical therapy, do the basics for falls, but what caused the fall? Because if we don't get to the heart of that matter, it'll happen again. And as an endocrinologist uh, who sees many complex patients with diabetes, I can uh, totally understand what you're saying. It seems to me that we almost need to change the way different professions deliver health care and incorporate the mobility and the functional component into everything we do. I can tell you that there is a PhD student here at NSU who is looking at the home health industry and how physical therapists make their decision of what screens and assessments to do. That's a huge, huge component of healthcare, and it's unconscionable that someone who is able to see somebody in the home, even though the reason they may be seeing them has nothing to do with a fall, but they've been hospitalized, it's just unconscionable not to look at the underlying conditions. And that's one of the things we stress in our educational program. If somebody has diabetes, and it doesn't matter what they come to physical therapy for, there are certain assessments that should be done. And that speaks to maybe failure of communication between uh, the primary care setting, the specialists, and the home health care services. Potentially, but I also think physical therapists do their own evaluations and assessments. So we are trained to look at the underlying conditions in a holistic way. And the forms that are required should be directing that, but it doesn't mean that it's done. It doesn't mean that the occupational therapist going into the house does it either. So that's a problem. There is a systemic problem. I understand time limits. I understand productivity. I understand the challenges with documentation. But the patients should be who we're centering our care around. And it can't just be based on what we think or what we want to do, but rather how the patient presents. And comorbidities are a big challenge. And again, if somebody's been hospitalized, they're a fall risk. And I've never been in a situation where I assess somebody and they didn't indicate by testing that they were a fall risk. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Stern, for coming in today and sharing your expertise with our audience. And it's been a real pleasure having this discussion again with you. Thanks. And I think we all need to work on prevention. I think we have to get aging adults active. We have to get them moving. And we can't let anybody remain in bed or in a chair if they have ability to progress beyond that. And we know that fitness can occur at any age. And there are senior athletes who are competing (laughs) at very, very high levels. I certainly couldn't match them. But we have a long way to go. We know what the problem is, but the solution is complex. And hopefully, as we work more in interprofessional initiatives, and like the GWEP, are educating other healthcare professionals about what needs to be done. There's hope, and I think if we can get to the leadership and the business people managing healthcare, 
that we could make big, big improvements. Well, thank you so much. Very uh, wise words indeed. And to our audience, please stay tuned for upcoming topics from our other renowned subject matter experts. Thank you so much.